Hello, I'm Bruce Kasman, and this is Global Data Pod, JP Morgan Economics podcast presenting all of our research and all of our debates about what's happening in the world. And certainly today, there's a pretty important debate about whether or not the global economies, more specifically, whether or not the US and Western European economies are slipping into recession. With me today to discuss these issues is Malcolm Barr, our head of Western European economics, Rafael Brunaguir, who's part of the European team, Joe Lupton, and myself, Bruce Kasman, chief economist. I want to start by uh, you know, recognizing what's happened in the first half of the year. We may or may not get a positive reading on US GDP in the second quarter, but I think when we look at performance, at least for the first few months of this year, what we've seen is a tension between a global economy that has been buffeted by multiple adverse shocks, inflation being the manifestation of, of, of a few of those, um, but has also shown quite a bit of resiliency. And that resiliency in the US and Western Europe is most clearly seen in the very strong labor market data, but not exclusively that. So you may ask, why are we talking about recession risk right now? And remember, we are talking about recession risk, not for whether we get recession a year, year and a half from now, because central banks have to tighten too much to control inflation. We're talking about whether we're sliding into recession as we go through um, the middle months of 2022. The reason we're talking about it is the drags don't seem to be going away. It's certainly in Western Europe, we may even have an intensifying drag. Uh, we're talking about it because sentiment has taken a very significant dive. And we're talking about it particularly because the data flow is suggesting to us that that resiliency we're seeing in the private sector in terms of consumer spending, in terms of business surveys, in terms of CapEx indicators uh, are all starting to, to show momentum slides downward that you know, are really raising our alarm bells as to where uh, economies are in the US and Western Europe. I, I'll emphasize that it's not entirely the case globally. We are seeing China move in the other direction, but we'll get into that perhaps a little bit later. Uh, so let's start right now in terms of talking about recession risk. Um, and Joe, maybe a, a minute from you, just characterizing how close have we come in terms of what our global uh, indicators are telling us in terms of activity around the middle part of the year. So look, I, I think obviously we're talking about recession risk because we we're seeing, as you've noted, things in the data flow that are that are concerning us. I, I you know we tend to look closely at the goods sector partly because that is a high frequency good read on what's happening. It's high beta and opposed to a service sector that is stickier. But it's also simply because that's where the data is. Uh, and the data that we're seeing there, I think, in the goods sector is is a source of real concern. So despite the resilience that you talked about through the first half. I think as a whole, that's true. But as the, the, the leading edge of that into the middle of the year is one of contraction. Our global goods proxy, uh, final demand proxy, which is lo looking at consumer goods spending, real consumer goods spending, as well as business equipment spending, combines those into a broad indicator. It's actually been contracting in the, in the three months through May. Uh, and now we're starting to see uh, manufacturing sector, which had been supported significantly by an inventory build in the first half of the uh, first quarter of the year, uh, and frankly, a welcome build in inventories that we thought were quite lean as we came into the year. Um, that's starting to roll over as well on the production side. Production looks to be 
contracting. China is certainly a part of that. I don't want to forget that, and we can get into that later. But I think even when you look outside of China, you're seeing a slowing in, in global industry. Uh, and then what's probably making us even more concerned is that inventories are still building in that environment. Our latest PMI readings are showing a very concerning jump in inventories uh, at a time when orders are slowing. And, and that that those are kind of the, the alarm bells, as you mentioned, that suggest some behavioral shift may be taking place. And so it's, I think it's absolutely right to have this conversation. It's absolutely right for people to be worrying about the risk of recession uh, in, in various corners of the world. Well, let's, let's turn more specifically to your area. I think, I think it's fair to say that the data flow through May, June are not suggesting that Western Europe is in recession at this point. Um, but we are getting more concerned in both the UK and the euro area. We put in negative readings for later this year on GDP. Uh, so we are actually in those cases looking at something which I guess we should call a recession. We'll get into a debate about what that actually means in a second. Um, but um, Malcolm, Raphael, I don't know who wants to start. Could you go through what has prompted these changes in our, our Western European forecast? Well, I'll take that one just to start with. I mean, the, the, the simple biggest factor at play here is really just the ongoing update of what's going on with the size of the energy shock. Um, you know, this is something that we've been having to revisit from time to time in terms of exactly how much, uh, you know, how you, you calibrate this both in price terms and in quantity terms. And the news just continues to be pretty bleak in that regard. Now, as of this set of forecast changes, we've marked up what we're assuming on prices um, to assume effectively a, a 150 in terms of uh, TTF through this year. But the on the quantity side, we haven't really gone deep into the idea that you're going to have rationing. And, you know, it, it would appear that with the, the news over the last 48 hours or so that that is, uh, you know, already something that you can ask questions about because a 20% of maximum flow through Nord Stream is you know, well below where most people think you need to be if you're going to avoid rationing through the winter. So I think the single biggest place to, to, to look for why the forecast is changing is there. I think that the second thing to say is as we go through mid-year, this is still an economy that should be getting a decent bounce from two other sources. The first is normalization in the services sector post-COVID, uh, you know, recognizing that in Germany, for example, it was, it was really only as you got into the early part of the second quarter that restrictions were fully lifted. We should also be seeing some easing in terms of supply bottlenecks and the goods sector starting to work into order backlogs. And you know, what we're seeing in the high frequency data in terms of the business surveys and the hard industry data really is just showing that those two things are just not measuring up in terms of what we're, we're seeing as we're going through the middle part of the year. And so I think that the, the combination that the sources of lift are not you know, giving us what we thought we would get while the, the big drag in the story looks all, all, all that much bigger, you know, that's, that's really why we've got the, the forecast revisions that we've, we've, um, we've made over the last uh, day or so. So we're now looking for both the UK and Euro area to be contracting as we go to the end of the year. Let's, let's describe that event specifically for the Euro area a little more broadly, Raphael. You know, talk to us about 
what happens uh, to labor markets, how much does that actually help in getting inflation down? Obviously, the natural gas price increase is going the other way. And what do you think the ECB is going to be doing here? Well, yeah, Malcolm rightly pointed out to the fact that the main driver of the change is, is gas prices. And obviously, this has very large consequences when we need to think about inflation in very short term. So the, the, the way gas prices impact the HICP is something that is gradual. Um, the maximum impact of that is going to be felt uh, in the second quarter of this year. We basically lift at that point in time uh, the inflation forecast by a bit more than a uh, percentage point. Um, and effectively, this has... Just give uh, us a sense of numbers here. What's the what's the inflation forecast you got for the third quarter, just to sort of put that in, in context? Well, third quarter of, of this year, we're talking about a forecast that is close to 9%. We've got 87 and that's basically the, the sort of the peak that we have is September, we're coming down. And if you look a year later, third quarter of 2023, we sort of back to something that is much lower. We're slightly above 2%. So you can see how much of a decline we have in the headline inflation rate. To talk now, about the damage in, in terms of what this means for the euro economy in terms of yeah, where, so, we, where we're seeing the recession felt so and the ECB, it, of course, in that yeah, context. Yeah. The recession is concentrated in around the turn of the year. So we have negative prints in, in the fourth quarter and the first quarter. Um, we've basically went on to the idea that the damage in terms of the labor market would be moderate if you compare to what usually you would have thought in the past. The, the reason for that is that companies have struggled for quarters now to basically hire people. So I think uh, we should be thinking about these companies uh, being careful uh, when the recession comes and try to, to keep people on board, if I may say. Um, so that's, that's, that's how we feel the, the labor market is going to, to play out uh, with some increase in um, the unemployment rate, modest increase, um, um, about three tenths up to in comparison to where we are now. So something closer to 7%. Uh, in, in the early part of next year. That's um, something that if I were to present the change relative to the, the baseline that we had before, it's about a six to seven tenths uh, uh, change here. So uh, that is something that remains um, as well significant. Now, what we have in mind as well is that past that sort of event recession, we have uh, activity rebounding. So when we think about the ECB, uh, we need to think about two phases. We have uh, the crisis coming up, um, activity uh, coming down, and, and we think uh, the ECB is going to make a pause at some point, which is going to be after October. So before that, the ECB is concerned about inflation. The ECB is continuing to um, increase its policy rate. But what we've changed is effectively we had um, three hikes this year. We now think we're going to have only two hikes uh, one in September, one in October, we're talking about 25 basis point hikes, but then we're going through a pause. Um, that pause is basically there up until activity starts to rebound. That's basically the second half of next year when we think ECB will have to rethink in terms of these uh, neutral policy rates, effectively realizing that it's not quite there and having to restart again in terms of policy normalization. And we have two hikes in the forecast, again, 25 basis points once a quarter in the second half of next year. Maybe a word on the Bank of England and uh, the UK story, Malcolm, because that's 
also a, an economy slipping into recession, but also doing so in the backdrop of uh, another spike coming on the inflation side. Yeah, I think there's there's a, a quite a lot of um, common ground in the story. I think that the distinguishing um, yeah, features is that as far as the UK is concerned, I think that the evidence that wage growth is responding to labour market tightness, that inflation persistence is getting embedded in the services sector, I think those things are, are more conspicuous. Uh, and you know, like the euro area, I think that we're, we're expecting um, you know, the labour market to hold in relatively well in an environment where uh, firms are, are reporting labour shortages, even as, as we go into a phase of output growth, which is you know, flat to, 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 to outright contracting. So from the Bank of England's point of view, I think this basically put, means that the, the, the tension between what you want to do to support growth versus what you, what you need to do to manage inflation is, is a bit more acute. And that means that the, the Bank of England is, is slower to go um, you know, into a pause than the, than the ECB. So you know, effectively, we have the Bank of England slowing down its tightening, but continuing it in the early part of next year, even, even in an environment where growth through the noise is averaging slightly below uh, below zero. So I think, you know, in effect, you can you can bracket the UK as being, you know, subject to a lot of the same dynamics, but with a slightly more exaggerated inflation issue uh, accompanying an energy driven slowing in growth. Can I so let me, jump let, in there and the, push on that a second, Bruce? I mean, this issue of the shallow and short recession is certainly welcomed and it does take some steam out of these economies. But I wonder if that's um, maybe missing something a little bit more concerning, which is some of the, the structural signals that this is giving us uh, in, the, in the European, in the Euro area, I should say, the Euro area case, a world in which you know the business model of relying on cheap natural gas has fundamentally changed. And that means business willingness to kind of invest and grow within Europe has fundamentally changed. And maybe that gets set up elsewhere. Uh, and so that means lower kind of structural growth in the Euro area. In the UK's case, I think we, we don't want to forget, and I know you haven't forgotten, Malcolm, about the Brexit effect that is really showing up here. And, and the business investment is, is actually quite stunning how little there has been since the pandemic, even as other areas of the world has recovered. And you put all this together and it feels like, yeah, you've got a, a, a shallow, short recession if we're right, and we can breathe a sigh of relief and maybe even take some pressure off inflation. So that's all well and good. But I think beneath the surface, there's a there's a pretty negative longer term signal that we should be taking from this. Is it is that a fair characterization? Well, I think I think in some sense, yes. However, one of the things which is lurking in the background here is that certainly in the in the euro area, I think less so in the UK, is the the EU budget has earmarked a very large pot of cash for investment related to energy transition. Now, up until the uh, Ukraine war, there was a sense of a big envelope of funding, uh, an objective, which is down the line in terms of where you want to get to, but not a, a tremendous amount of coherence in plotting the route between 
A and B. And I think what is going on is you're absolutely right to say there's a challenge to business models that comes from the shock to gas supply that, that the region is having to deal with. And that's a structural or multi-year event. But I also do think that event is actually injecting urgency into the deployment of that fund mm -hmm. and actually putting into practice at country level uh, infrastructure investment to actually start to diversify away uh, from Russian gas supply, which to some extent is, a, is the offset to the, the negative in the, in the private business sector that you've seen. I mean, for example, you know, Germany... Uh, you know, has actually just started the construction of a new LNG plant, which it had been vacillating about for years. You know that the, the spades are now in the ground. Um, you know, so I think we, we there are there is a sense in which um, you know this this can bring forward in time quite a large envelope of spending, which had been potentially you know more more deferred. So. I, I am hopeful that that, you know, works to, you know, is operative here. I, I must, you know, while I say that, recognize something, which is I, I do think we have to recognize we're still in a world where the, the sorts of weakness in output that we have in our forecast here is frankly chump change compared to what most analysis suggests can happen if you really are in a quantity rationing world for energy. Let's uh, let's come back to that if I could, because I want to sure. get back. I want I want to also bring the U.S. in here, and I want to just make the point that we don't have a, a recession forecasted for the U.S. Uh, we are going to see it looks like a much different pattern in energy price inflation in the summer, where the U.S. Mm -hmm. gets a fairly significant uh, moderation in headline inflation, and that's an important uh, difference between the two regions. Uh, we have growth staying close to 1%, um, but we have a pretty similar profile in terms of what happens to the labor market. The U.S. unemployment rate is up about three-tenths over the next uh, uh, four quarters. So in some ways, the euro area and the U.K. and the, U and the U.S. Or, or Western Europe and the U.S. you know, sort of sit here a year from now in a somewhat similar to position in terms of having had a modest few-tenth rise in their unemployment rates. Uh, and in both cases, our economists, you guys, and, and Mike, Mike Froley and team in the U.S., are forecasting a pretty substantial drop in core inflation back towards um, central bank targets. In the U.S., it's not quite as much. We have inflation getting into the mid-twos at the end of next year. It's not fully back to the 2% objective, but there's a pretty significant deceleration going on. I guess the question I want to ask you guys, is, you know, you're raising an important point, Malcolm, which is whether we're underestimating the damage that could be done by natural gas rationing in Europe. But let's just stay to our, our baseline forecast right now, which is there's a moderate rise in unemployment in both the U.S. and Western Europe in the next few quarters. Why do we think that's going to be sufficient to get inflation back towards pretty close, in your case, to the to the uh, ECB objective. Can, can I just jump in and just set the stage a little bit more for that? Because I think there are actually very notable differences in the outlook that go beyond what you're saying in terms of characterizing the cyclical positions being similar. Uh, I think that they both have a rise in the unemployment rate. I think in the U.S.'s case, it's partly a story about labor supply, which has been depressed in a way that you haven't seen 
in in Europe, uh, and so you're the I would say the European um, rise in unemployment rate is more kind of demand driven, whereas the U.S. rise in the unemployment rate has more of a supply side element to it. I don't I don't want to push that too hard, but I think you can make that statement. I think where we are cyclically is radically different. Uh, you know, by the time we get to the end of next year, the U.S. It has an output gap, at least by our estimates, that are positive and you know kind of still somewhat overheating a little bit, which you know does call into question the disinflation. But as you noted, we do have inflation running, you know, still a bit rich on the on the high side. Whereas Europe, and I, I was actually going to get around to pushing you guys on this in our, in our forecast, we just never really recover. I mean, we it's a mild recession, yes, but we don't have any bounce back from it. And if anything, we took our output gap, which was already negative, to, I think negative two by the end of next year. It's now negative three by the end of next year. Um, that's a very different position than the US. It does set up a lot of challenges in terms of what the ECB is gonna do versus the Fed. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you wanna unpack that. But uh, could we, before we get now, into the it, issue of gap, can we just talk yeah. about inflation? Like, why do we get inflation yeah. down to 2% in the euro area if the unemployment rate a year from now is sitting where it is today? Well, I guess one of the points that um, Joe mentioned in terms of this output gap, I mean, if you if you look at it this way, it certainly creates a, a pressure for inflation to come down significantly. Right. Now, at the same time, we, we do have pressures coming from other places. I mean, everything that's related to to bottlenecks that we thought would have baited to a large extent uh, is still there in the pipeline. Um, we do have some news, uh, in some ways, data that are um, improving in some places, but news as well on the corporate side that these issues could be um, lasting there for, for, for longer. And, and the story on gas um, is also a story for underlying inflation that I think matters. Uh, we've assumed in, in the new projection that in the short run, core inflation would basically be impacted on, on the services and core goods side by higher gas prices. Now, everything that is related to the, um, the lower activity profile is basically bringing that down. It's basically offsetting that uh, later on. But um, I would think that th there's a risk that potentially there's a, a bit more than what we assume in the pipeline. That's certainly what the ECB did uh, in, in the alternative scenario, they have um, underlying inflation sticking at a higher level when they think about higher gas prices. So you have a bunch of forces. You have forces to the upside, but we certainly have uh, a consideration that the output gap is large. So from a cyclical point of view, um, it probably makes sense to have a large decline in inflation. But let's let's kind of you know underlying that view is in some ways what you just said and what Joe said, which is that despite the fact that the unemployment rate is at a, uh, a post-EMU low uh, at the middle of next year, despite the fact that you're gonna have a pass-through of another huge amount of pressure coming from energy prices, despite the fact that globally inflation is high, and despite the fact that the Euro has come down, are you arguing that all of that gets offset by the fact that we have slack in some basic sense because GDP hasn't come back to its uh, uh, level pre-crisis uh, path. I mean, I'm trying to understand conceptually why inflation comes down as much as it does. Well, that, that's the argument right. that I've laid out. Now, if you ask me in terms of the risks where I think they stand, I think the risks are to the upside. That's that's another way to look at it. 
but but let me just say, I mean, Bruce, there's a timing issue here that it seems like you're you're conflating the natural gas story, which is right now and one of the precipitating events that's driving the recession. But then you're asking about inflation next year. And, and Raphael, your first answer should be, well, we don't think natural gas prices are still going to be going up 200% over the coming year. We actually think they're no, going but to be it falling. It doesn't matter, Joe. The level of natural gas prices in Europe is going to have been high for a year, year and a half. And that has some impact. You're, unless you're telling me that energy CPI is going to reverse its huge rise of 2022 and, and it's probably not going to reverse it, but inflation is going to come down. Inflation is going to come down. But the that was your question. Why is inflation come down? I'm talking about core inflation, Joe, not a headline inflation, core inflation. I'm asking why Why do, does this year's surge in headline inflation in a world in which labor markets remain tight, why doesn't that pass through to wages? Why doesn't that pass through to other prices and keep inflation well above 2%? That's what I'm asking. And part of the answer here, Bruce, is that if you look at the, the extent of labor market adjustment we have as output contracts, it's pretty small. Um, and implicit is the idea that some of this hit is being taken on hours. It's being taken in terms of wage moderation. Uh, so, you know, in some sense, the, the move up in the unemployment rate is to some extent, you know, slightly underplaying the extent to which the bargaining power is shifting within in the labor market. Um, now, you know, that's a call. It can be wrong. Um, and I think I think there's a, there's an, another lurking issue here, which is um, you know something I know you've been kind of keen to emphasise is salience of price rises and and the idea that there is an endogenous dynamic of inflation which is going to take time to fade. Um, I think the work that Greg has done in our team, sort of chiselling out what's going on with the non-pandemic pieces of inflation, still suggests that those haven't risen high enough for you to say that you can you can clearly show that that dynamic is already operative in the bits of pricing which are removed from the energy in the pandemic shock so you know i think i think you've got you've got two ways of challenging that view on inflation i think you can say look you know that we don't have enough labor market weakness to keep the lid on it or you can say that there's a there's a deeper expectations channel which is already operative which is going to keep uh, inflation higher for longer and I think those those are two challenges to the view which you know at this point we're we're taking the other side of the view on but um, you know certainly on on the salience point I think so far it's it's probably fair to say that um, you know you you've won more more of those arguments than you've lost but let me come back to something you said earlier because my 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 gut feeling is that this macro forecast is too benign in the sense that if we get the growth outcome, we're not gonna get inflation come down as much. But the bigger issue is that I worry that we're not gonna get the growth outcome and maybe the inflation forecast looks good because growth is gonna be a lot weaker. You mentioned a few minutes ago, Malcolm, and I think it's, it's worth coming back to this, that we're not building in rationing in the latter part of the year in Europe. Uh, what is the kind of range here we should be thinking about if we start to ration if there's more serious, you know, uh, cut off of Russian exports, I mean, what's the range to the downside here that we should be thinking about in terms of where euro area uh, growth should be, and how much does that actually spill over? Just thinking about the region 
is that going to kick in very hard in terms of UK, Scandi, and, 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 and more broadly regional growth in a way that that's not by any means in our forecast at this moment? Well, I mean, if, if we look at the studies which have been done by the German institutes and others on what happens if you get quantity rationing of, of energy, um, you get a big spread of numbers, but I think most of the um, most of the estimates are giving you multiple percentage point declines in the level of GDP, which are sustained for a quarter or two. So I, I would I would take that as being of a, of a similar order of magnitude and a similar amount of uncertainty as a kind of latter stage COVID type shutdown. Um, you know, not not as deep as when the, the thing first hit, but, you know, not too far removed in magnitudes from, you know, what we saw in, in you know, the latter part of last year and the early part of this, uh, as you were forced to put restrictions in place. Um, I, I'm also personally sensitive to the fact that when you look at those studies, a lot of how they work is about how you model the network functional functionality of Europe in terms of its ability in a ration scenario to get the energy where it needs to be as climate and other fluctuations push demand around through the winter. And I, I am nervous myself that the extent of that interconnectivity technologically and the extent of the political commitment to solidarity of sharing energy supply um, might be found wanting when those things are under stress. So I think these are, you know, I, I, I think there's a there's a real chance that we can get big impacts out of this. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and as a result, I think, you know, in some sense, it, it's, I think it's very easy to look at the forecast and say, well, that actually looks relatively benign because if we get through this along those lines, you will probably have, uh, have avoided a much deeper crater as we went through the winter, you know, that could have occurred. So, you know, well, in some well, let's sense ask this question when we step away, Joe, as you think about the world, let's say we did shock the Euro area more. There is a, a rationing story and let's just put a, a round number. Let's just say we take something close to two percentage points more off Euro area or Western European growth. That would be a, a, a genuinely uh, deep recession, at least for, for, for a couple of quarters. Um, how do you think about that from spillover effects to the, to the global economy? How large is that? Is that enough given our baseline tracking to actually throw the US and the rest of the world into recession? I wouldn't look at the European if if you were just calling this a European shock, I well, would call it a, a say a that's a, a rationing shock. So it'd be very specific to Europe. The, in, in the, right. So that's what I meant. I mean, I meant like if this is something that just affects Europe, and then we're asking what's the spillover of that. I think, you know, historically we would have said, you know, a shock like that probably to the rest of the world has a beta of only I think like 0.3. Um, you know, so relatively mild. And I think that is a reflection of historically, uh, you know, we don't 
tend to see Europe leading the cycles, right? This is going to be one of those rare events if the U.S. does kind of follow Europe into recession where uh, Europe is kind of a leader here. Um, that doesn't, at least in the last 30 years or so, it seems to be the U.S. has, has led European downturns. Um, so I think that is a, a function of that. Uh, I, I, I'm more worried about the what's that the issues that are driving the European um, recession that we've put in is that our European team is just more Johnny on the spot to, to kind of actually you know put this in where elsewhere in the world we're we're seeing the same shocks and we I talked about this up front we're seeing the good set take in and we've been worried about the repeated body blows to household sector purchasing power that when are they going to crumble well you can see a kind of crumbling in the good sector. Um, you know, maybe the U.S. We should switch to a U.S. recession call. Um, you know that I'm 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 more worried about, and I think, you know, to the extent there are these global shocks that are working through the global economy, um, I think it's a safe bet to say, like this is a this is a very elevated, and in my sense is that it's a coin toss at this point whether we have some type of uh, global event. I do think that the next questions to ask are about you know, um, depth and duration. And I, I know there are some people out there who suggest this could be deep and long. I, I don't, I don't understand that call at all. I think, you know, the nature of the, of the macro backdrop right now is not something that would give you a, either a deep or a, or a long recession. You don't have that macro economic leverage we tend to talk about. And, um, so my sense is the shallow, short recession that the European team is putting in would, would be something that would be indicative of, of, the, uh, of a recession elsewhere in the world, i.e. The, the U.S. is kind of what we're talking about. Asia is very different, right? I mean, Asia is in this kind of weird rebound phase with China really roaring back from its earlier COVID shutdown. But I definitely don't think China's, uh, you know, out of the woods on its zero tolerance policy. And you can see the, you know, increasing anecdotes of cases picking up there. So the start stop concerns around there, um, you know, and then that spilling, spilling over into the rest of the region is something that is very much on our mind. So, you know, recession risks are 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 everywhere. They're palpable, and Europe could just be the first one to have actually made the call, albeit a short and shallow one, uh, which is something I, I actually am, am sympathetic to. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap this up. I, I do think we should understand that recessions should be characterized by the event itself in terms of whether it's deep, whether it's long, but it's also about what actually the recovery after it looks like. And there, there was up until the last uh, 15 or so years a view that deep recessions lead to quick and strong recoveries, but we certainly saw after the GFC that was the case. We've also had shallow recessions, which have had very shallow uh, recoveries. So um, you know, I think when we talk about the nature of an event, if it happens, I think we have to both talk about how deep and how long-lasting the recession is, but also what happens in the global economy coming out of it. And I would agree with you, Joe, it's hard without building in some meaningful geopolitical event like a big rationing right. event in Europe to have a, a deep recession here. But it's easy to think about scenarios where you have a shallow recession and a, a very shallow recovery from that. And you actually raised some issues around that uh, earlier in this uh, uh, podcast. 
but I don't think we're going to have the time, given where we, we are uh, in the conversation, to, to get into that. Um, but uh, just recognize that right now we do have a call that Europe, Western Europe, enters into, a, I guess, what you'd call a mild recession later this year. We still think the U.S. is going to be resilient, as Joe is pointing out. The, the global dynamic on the data flow are raising concerns about whether we're slipping more uh, than what our baseline forecast, not just for the U.S., but elsewhere, is uh, uh, representing. Uh, so obviously, we'll continue to have this conversation and track uh, where we stand, including, of course, not just on the, on the growth side, but how this, as we've discussed, interacts with the inflation outlook and what central banks are going to do. So thanks, everybody. Hope we can continue the conversation at the next Global Data Pod. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded in July 2022.